If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, author and former war reporter Jack Fairweather tells us about his book, The Volunteer. The book is an account of the Polish resistance operative Witold Polecki, who in the summer of 1940 accepted a remarkable mission. He would voluntarily enter a new Nazi concentration camp called Auschwitz and attempt to uncover the fate of the thousands who had been interned there. Jack's biography, which was recently named as one of five winners of the 2020 Costa Book Award, explores Polecki's journey. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met Jack in London to find out more. So Jack, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is the first major account of Vitor Pilecki. And how did you come to his story? So I was sitting with a war reporter friend of mine in 2011. We'd both been covering Iraq and Afghanistan and we're trying to make sense of our experiences. He had done a reporting assignment to Auschwitz and had come across... Uh, the story of the camp resistance there. Um, I was completely blown away by the idea that there could be resistance in a place like Auschwitz and, um, you know, wanted to find out more. The next year, uh, Paletsky's first report was translated into English um, in, in 2012, which I read. And um, it was an incredible sort of seat-of-your-pants story about his his work in the camp, but actually only deepened the mystery for me because there were lots of episodes that he left out. Um, he went on to fight against the the communists at the end of the war, and so he didn't want to reveal lots of, lots of details. And um, I think the, the biggest question that I had really was just, you know, what would make him do such a thing, do the unthinkable and um, take a mission to Auschwitz. And so with with that knowledge, that question, I um, started research. Um, so it took about three and a half years with a team of researchers. And um, I've been trying to explore that, that question ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'd love to go into how you followed his route, because that's an incredible story in itself. But if we could perhaps just start with, with the, um, the overriding question, really, how did Paletsky uh, end up in, in Auschwitz? So um, in June 1940, the Nazi occupation of Poland um, was nine months in... It was a brutal, horrific regime um, with mass arrests and incarcerations, and uh, the Germans opened a concentration camp in which to store some of these Polish political prisoners that they were dragging off the streets. Um, Little was known about the camp. This is... At this stage, the Nazis had not conceived of the final solution and this was a camp primarily for for poles and um, a few snatches of rumors were reaching warsaw about 
the atrocities in the in the camp and the underground wanted to find out more and they turned to Paletsky and said would you like to take a mission to Auschwitz and um, you know it was obviously a, a massive decision Paletsky 38 years old had two kids uh, wife they were living outside the city at the time um, he had what he thought was an important job in Warsaw, building up an underground cell um, in preparation for an uprising. And he struggled with that decision. Um, and there were roundups all the time um, that summer. And he learned about one in which the prisoners were possibly to be sent to Auschwitz, it seemed. So that brought him to this great moment of decision when it was, do you take, do you wait in an apartment that you know is about to be raided by the, the Germans and get sent to Auschwitz or do you not? And, um, you know, that became a sort of focal point of the, of the book for me and, and you know, the, launch, the launch pad for the research. Mm-hmm. What, what's known about um, his initial experiences in the in the early um, months he was at the camp? So Paletsky, in some of his later reports, describes the arrival in the camp. And it's, it's very harrowing. The experience of the Polish political prisoners was, uh, was extreme. They were dragged from the train that brought them there, beaten, stripped, shaved, given numbers in place of names, and then... Um, put into work details on starvation rations. Um, German prisoners ran the camp for the SS and were brutal. They picked on the weakest and rewarded those who would inform on the other prisoners. It was an inverted moral order. And it was hugely shocking, not just to Paletsky, but it's a common feature of all the reports that you, all the um, testimonies you read of prisoners, that sort of sense of having stepped into a into a different world. Um, I think what was, you know, so incredible about, incredible about Paletsky's uh, perspective was almost from the beginning, after that initial shock, he was thinking about how to subvert the Nazis' order, how to bring down the camp. And that became the genesis of um, his first recruiting of fellow prisoners and, indeed, his first reporting on what was happening in the camp. And um, he doesn't actually talk about or write about uh, that first recruitment um, but I found several accounts of by his very first, um, the very first members of the camp underground that describe the extraordinary moment when Paletsky went up to them, and tapped them on the shoulder, and said, "You know, would you join? Would you join the underground?" Can you talk a little bit more then about that, um, the formation of that that network amid the? You know, the horrific experiences, the decisions that had to be made, the the fighting for survival in those camps. How did he go about identifying and networking with with those people? Yeah, so so I one of my favorite scenes in the book is actually when he approaches this twenty one year old prisoner, Konstanty Piekarski, Con for short, and reveals to him the secret of the underground. And Con, yeah, so the the prisoners are able to socialize 
for an hour after evening roll call, uh, just before the curfew sets in. And they're usually gathered in one space, safety in numbers, and would try and barter food or share some snippets of gossip or, or news. And um, they were, of course, all badly beaten and starving. And Pletsky takes Con aside and says... Here's the underground, and Con just looks at him, and this is where his, you know, the sort of honesty of the moment, and says, "Are you nuts? Look at us. We have no no state to resist the Nazis. This is, you know, you're crazy." And then something I think sort of special happens that for me really spoke to um, what made the underground possible in the camp. Paletsky, in sharing his mission with Con, was really entrusting him with his life because Conn could have just turned around, found one of the German uh, p- prisoners, the capos as they were called, and, and got an extra loaf of bread for, for betraying um, Paletsky. And what he did by trusting him with, the, with his life was essentially show him that something greater than themselves could exist in the camp. And one of the, I think one of the, powerful facts about the underground was just how few ever betrayed Paletsky or or each other. You know, that bond that they had, that sense of a higher calling was, you know, was un, unbreakable. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's a real testimony to Paletsky's ability just to keep on trusting those around him despite the high risks um, despite the betrayals of, among other prisoners, that he just kept on, kept on expanding his network, and in that way, defeating the Nazis' moral order in the in the camp. And as well as this work underground within the camp, um, the network was able to get some information outside of Auschwitz. Yeah. So How, yeah. So uh, let me yeah. jump in. So yeah. I mean, Paletsky, in the beginning, the resistance you know, grew bit by bit. And it was really about helping other prisoners survive, making sure that food was distributed evenly or that, you know, and that those prisoners in need, in dire need, had extra extra rations. But pr- pretty soon, Paletsky realized that, you know, that in itself wasn't enough. And he had been sent to the camp with an idea that perhaps they would stage a breakout at some point. He realized as soon as he saw the state of the prisoners that a breakout wouldn't be possible without outside help. So that meant having to create an intelligence gathering network. Of course, that then posed the small problem of how in the world do you send a report out of the camp? And um, I think one of the amazing things, inspiring things about Paletsky is just, you know, he was such a great problem solver. He was always you know, using all of this creativity and ingenuity uh, to work out how to um, get around the Nazis. And um, in this case, for that first report, he found uh, out that one of the prisoners was due to be released. His family had paid some bribes in Warsaw. And so Paletsky couldn't write out a report saying it's terrible in Auschwitz and hand it to him. Um, But he composed a mental report, oral report, that he then had this prisoner memorize, practice, and make sure he got every word right. And then at the end of October 1940, that prisoner was released a month into his time in the camp. 
and brought his report to Warsaw. And then in the you know in the book, I talk about the extraordinary journey of that report across occupied Europe. Um, it was one of the moments in the research where you get real goosebumps because uh, my researcher called me and Marta and called me in London said, I've found the report um, that had made its way across across Europe. Um, she had found Paletsky's words. They had been written down and, and couriered across Europe. And those words were pretty stunning. Um, you know, they spoke both to the desperation of the prisoners, but also to Paletsky's clear-sightedness. Um, he's, he called on the Allies to bomb the camp, to destroy Auschwitz, even if it meant killing him, killing everyone in the camp, because he felt that what was happening, even in 1940, you know, some years before the Holocaust, that what was happening there was so terrible that it needed to be stopped. And so that's, you know, that's what I then write about, um, you know, this moment when the RAF head, Charles Portal, is, discusses with the head of Bomber Command, Richard Pierce, should we bomb Auschwitz? Can we bomb Auschwitz? And um, I think it's it's one of history's great might have beens. You know, a mission then to destroy the camp. Yeah, it's a it's a huge question. I mean, what's your take on the actions they took or didn't take? I think they understood enough to seriously contemplate a mission to bomb Auschwitz. That they understood that Auschwitz was a place of unusual brutality. And they also understood that, you know, the Polish government who was in exile at the time in, in London, um, they understood that they needed to heed their pleas, that they were a credible source of information. That um, And when they called on them to act, they were obliged to listen and to take it on board. Um, of course, they... They didn't, and I have some sympathy with Portal's reasoning that he gave. That it was at the outer limits of what was possible by the RAF at that time. I mean, it's worth remembering this is the height of the Blitz when Paletsky's report arrives in in London. Um, I mean, they're getting bombed every single night. The Great Fire of London, this uh, this bombing raid just before um, New Year's and nineteen. Uh, 1941 had just taken place as portals reading at the cities in flames and um, simply sending a plane to Auschwitz was at the outer limit of how far they could fly and they had no radar so they were the RF at the time was relied on clear skies in order to bomb or they did this thing where they would just bomb after flying for a certain length of time in the hope that it would hit their targets leaving a lot of you know the german intelligence at the time was scratching their heads wondering you know what were, what were the british aiming at because the you know most of the bombs went no nowhere near their targets there's a lot of reasons why a, a mission then was have been really tough but i think what was important what is the missed opportunity is that it would have established this principle of moral intervention, of 
listening to the Polish government and recognizing that we had a duty to battle Nazi crimes, not just their sort of military war machine, but the crimes they committed against civilians and, uh, in this case, po the Polish political prisoners. And I think establishing that principle then would have meant that when later requests came, when the Holocaust began and um, it became clear the sort of the full scale of the Nazi evil, we would have already been, you know, in a in a can-do spirit um, and in a in a we would, you know, it's possible then Auschwitz would have been bombed. Going back to Pilecki then, how did this um, lack of intervention at this stage, um, what do we know about how he fell to that stage? So P Pilecki didn't have um, a huge amount of contact. He'd stolen a radio, which they kept hidden in the hospital, so they could hear what the Allies were up to. He obviously didn't hear Auschwitz being mentioned. But I think one of his, you know, remarkable qualities was that he, you know, he didn't give up. He remained optimistic. The The challenges he faced in the camp were so great that, you know, it didn't really allow for much sort of dwelling on the, the lack of allied action. He was expanding his underground constantly. He was trying to figure out what the Nazis were up to. So this is the, in 41 and 42, they began a series of experiments on the Polish political prisoners and then on the Soviet POWs when they began arriving in the camp that were really the sort of harbinger for the Holocaust. They were trying out mass euthanasia on sick prisoners and then they were trying out experimental gassings of of Soviet POWs um, you know, all of these unprecedented acts that Paletsky had to work out were happening, work out why they were happening, work out how to tell the world that they were happening. Um, so he was he was incredibly busy, incredibly committed to revealing the the horrors of the of the camp. And it, it was only actually later that he began to realize that help wasn't coming. You, you've mentioned how resourceful he was, how driven he was, and that definitely comes through in the account. But I wonder if we could talk about his motivations. So, uh, you know, Paletsky arrived in the camp when it was at the centre of the Nazis' repression and attempt to destroy Poland. And, you know, he saw his mission quite clearly as being one to report to the Polish underground to help the Polish prisoners and to, you know, overall alleviate um, the suffering of Poles broadly. The camp changed. It became firstly a place where Soviet POWs were, were sent to be worked to death and to be killed. Then it became a place, first of all, a regional death camp for, for the Nazis, for, for Poland's Jews, and then more broadly a collection point for Jews across Europe. So Paletsky was called upon to change his change his mission to expand his hit the scope of who he believed he was helping and you know I think it's a real testimony to him that at a time when many people across Europe were 
retreating into tribalism, into very narrow ethnic identities imposed on them by the Nazis, but still, you know, were retreating into themselves. When the Soviet POWs arrived in the camp, Pelecki must have seen them on some level as his enemies. Stalin and Hitler had signed a pact in 1939, at the start of the war, dividing the country in half. Pelecki's own home was occupied for two years by Soviet forces. So you would think that would, you know, that would stop him or at least make him pause for thought when then reporting on what was happening to the Soviets. But that wasn't the case. He, he, he took extreme risk. His men took extreme risk to make sure that the world knew what was happening to those, to, to those Russian prisoners and their horrific treatment. And um, the same happened for when Jewish families from across Europe, they had no national or, or family ties to, began arriving. He once again, you know, took that, took that effort to find out what was at that point, you know, the Nazis' greatest secret. And, um, you know, I think that expansion of his moral capacity in the face of evil is is something that's you know truly um tr truly incredible and um i think it's you know one of the messages that i wanted to share in the book that it that it is possible that you you don't have to retreat in the face of what you don't understand or in face of hardship and difficulty that you can actually make that effort to understand <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the whole history of the camp, there were around about 800 escapes and maybe only 100 were successful over the, you know, the, the four and a half years of the camp's existence. So it was fraught with danger. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So Pilecki, um does come to escape the camp. What can you tell us about um, 
the escape and his reporting on the um, horrors of Auschwitz after. So at a certain point, Paletsky realizes that his plans for the uprising aren't going to happen, that there isn't this response in in Warsaw and in the world that he is hoping for. It's a you know powerful moment in the book when he learns the truth and you know he realizes that the only chance he has of taking up action is to try and organize it himself and that means escaping the camp small problem and then rallying a force to come back and charge the gates um you know the craziness of both those ideas a real testimony to um you know the desperation he felt felt the and the terrible situation at that time and you know i think it's worth just dwelling on a moment the fact that you know paletsky became quite racked with guilt towards the end of his time in the camp um he was sending out messages trying his best to um to alert the world but he also recognized that in some level he was complicit in the sense that every life in the camp came at the expense of someone else's and you know there's a very poignant moment in the book when he describes returning back to the main camp and walking past the crematorium and there's a family that um he didn't say if they were jewish or not not but it seems likely and in the group is a 10 year old boy and they catch each other's eyes and paletsky knows they're about to get shot the family knows that they're about to be shot. He walks past and hears muffled gunshots. And that night he just lies in his bunk, wracked by wracked by a sense of shame, actually, because he he writes that, you know, for all of their talk of uprising, they he hadn't been able to save uh, the life of a ten year old child. Um so this was very much the sort of some of the propulsion that then sent him on this uh, incredibly dangerous task of trying to escape the camp. I mean, there have been in the whole history of the camp there were around about eight hundred escapes, and maybe only a hundred were successful over the you know the, the four and a half years of the camp's existence. So it was fraught with danger. He managed to find a way. Um, dashing from a bakery late at night, this helter-skelter journey across occupied Poland to a safe house outside Krakow, where he then, you know, tried to rally rally this force to a- attack the camp. And, um, you know, I think he never really overcame his sense of guilt, his sense of that there was somehow more that he should have done he went to Warsaw to press the underground there to attack the camp. Even as the Soviet forces were approaching, as Germany retreated and the country was facing, um, you know, a new communist occupation, he was still writing about Auschwitz, desperately trying to work out both what had happened, why he hadn't been able to be heard, um, and why the world hadn't responded. It's quite, I mean, there's almost not a day goes by in which he's not writing about the camp in some form, even, you know, in the midst of the uprising. And then when at the end of the war, when he's comes back to then fight against the communists, he's still writing about Auschwitz. He never leaves it be. Um, and, you know, I think it's, you know, this sort of double tragedy of his story that 
he wasn't listened to at the time. And then, of course, his story was then deleted from history and we have you know, largely not heard of his exploits since. So um, my hope is that with this book, we'll finally get to get to hear him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a remarkable story and a really horrifying episode. Um, as you say, that history was um, suppressed. So uh, can we talk then about um, your research for this book? What can you tell us about the process? So um, the first person I wanted to meet in the beginning of the research was his son, Andre Paletsky, who in his mid-80s, uh, living in Warsaw. And he had not known until the 1990s that about his father's mission. It was only the, the fall of the Iron Curtain that opened up the archives and sort of shed light on what his father had been up to. He knew his father had been in Auschwitz, not that he was a war hero. And um, I was you know, quite nervous about meeting him <laughs> As you can imagine, who was I to suddenly like a light on his father's story? But Andre was unbelievably engaging and welcoming. And he did warn me, you know, I'm not sure exactly what you'll find or where you should start looking, which was when I said to him, Andre, I'm starting with you because pretty much every detail that you have about your father is something that will go into the book because, you know, when so little is known about his motivations, just any insights you have on, on him is invaluable. So what was incredible about the research was just how many people were still alive who had memories of Paletsky. So it was his daughter, Zofia, who I got to spend lots of time with. And then, you know, there were one of his escapers who helped take the message about the Holocaust from the camp to the outside world. There was someone who had fought with him during the uprising and had memories of him shooting at the Germans as a wartime leader. Um, and many of them had just never told their stories before. They'd either dared not to during the communist period or since just no one had asked them. And what was really powerful, I found, was when I could connect their memories with the places that Paletsky had been. And I think none was more uh, amazing to me than the fact that the flat where Paletsky volunteered for his mission still stands in Warsaw. And so I took um, Marek Ostrovsky, his nephew, to that flat. He had been in the apartment, three-year-old child, when the Germans burst in and he had witnessed this first act of courage by Paletsky. And he hadn't been back to that apartment since the war because the communists had taken it over and he just had, hadn't been. And so, it, you know, he, he was very moved to be there, as was I to have him there. And he, he had this beautiful detail that he suddenly remembered about how just as the German steps were... Uh, footsteps were being heard on the stairs. Uh, Paletsky had reached down. They were in the bedroom together and picked up a teddy bear that was on the floor and handed it to him. And, um, you know, but for bringing him back to that, in that room, that lovely detail that for me spoke so eloquently of Paletsky's presence of mind, his ability to sort of reach out to himself, even at that moment when he was about to be seized by the Germans. Um you know, that, you know, that moment might not have been remembered. So I was, you know, I was very, I was just, you know, it was just incredible to 
to take Marek back to that apartment. And, um, you know, I wanted to, as much as possible, follow in Paletsky's footsteps um, and, you, you know, to the camp, spending time in and around the camp, understanding his all of his moves there. Um, at the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, they have over 3,500 prisoner testimonies, and there are hundreds of them describing either Paletsky's activities or those of the underground or events that he would have witnessed. Because, of course, being a prisoner, we sort of know where he was at any given time. So that really helped recreate the, the scenes. Um, and then followed his story all the way through to his escape, which, again, you know, when faced with that question, how do you escape from Auschwitz? Uh, part of the way I found to answer it was to literally recreate it by leaving um, leaving the camp 2 a.m. on the same day, sort of 80 or so years later that he did, and then following his course um, as best we could trace it um, along, um, out of the camp, along the edge of the Vistula. Um, so we, there were a few details that, names that he gave us um, of the towns he stopped in. So, and, and how long he traveled for. So we knew that he crossed the river just as dawn was breaking. So when <clears throat> when I got to that, as dawn broke on that morning, I was like, well, this is pretty close to where Paletsky would have crossed. That took us then to this open field that he briefly describes crossing, uh, which we saw and the, the line of trees where he rested. And um, what was you know also very moving about the experience was encountering so many Polish families who helped us along the way, some of whom had actually helped Paletsky. And the kids uh, remembered, you know, they're in their 80s, they remembered sheltering Paletsky as you know, this emaciated prisoner running for his life from Auschwitz and shared those, shared their brief experience with him. So it really did feel at times that we were chasing, <laughs> chasing after him. Um, and, you know, it gave me a real appreciation of you know, his physical stamina. And, you know, I think of also of just his, you know, that, that deep sense of mission that he felt at all times. Um, because by the time I finally got to the safe house, which still stands um, in Novi Vizhnich, this small town, and um, met the family who sheltered him, the three-year-old daughter who was alive then is now made me a cup of tea and shared with me um, some of the, the family memories of Paletsky staying. By the time I got there, I was ready to uh, ready to have a holiday. But of course, Paletsky was not. He immediately was trying to get the underground to attack the camp. So, um, you know, it spoke to me of his his incredible energy and determination. Mm -hmm. What an experience. Incredible. Um, where do you think Paletsky sits in terms of um, history or Polish history as a symbol of Polish resistance to the Holocaust? So Paletsky has emerged in the last two decades in Poland as a national figure. And so I think he's quite rightly foregrounded in the national memory when people think about the war and what happened afterwards. Um, there's a particular focus in Poland, understandably, on his resistance to the communists and the fact that he was killed by the communists at the end of the war. This sort of betrayal that I think 
um, you know, real, is is very powerful for many poles. Um, I think his story is not well understood when it comes to how he reported on the Holocaust and I think what is his really important role as a first alerter to what was happening in the camp. And I hope that, you know, through the book, people can see how his messages were received and, you know, will understand that, you know, there was an opportunity to take action against the camp that Paletsky gave the world. And um, we, uh, we didn't listen for reasons that I go into in the, in the book. Um, but I think that's uh, an essential historic task that Paletsky performed that um, I hope he will be recognised for. That was Jack Fairweather, the volunteer, the true story of the resistance hero who infiltrated Auschwitz, is out now, published by W.H. Allen. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Stephen Tompkins will be speaking about the emergence of Puritanism in England. Mm-hmm.